Valerie's my mother's name. Rush is for white suburban boys. Anybody remember cassettes? My tumor was the Beyonce of uterine fibroids. This is the soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. Hey there, this is the soundtrack series. Stories about songs, the soundtrack to our lives, part of the infinite guest network from American Public Media. I'm Dana Rossi. Coming up later on the show, comic Christian Finnegan tells us what kind of sucks about winning a car on a VH1 game show. As surreal as it felt when I won, I remember when I when I won, it was like the greatest moment of my life. And I thought like, I, I, I just, is this me? Is this my life I'm living? When I lost it, I felt like, yep, this feels right. <laughs> this feels totally the way it should. This is a feeling I'm used to. But first... You ain't nothing but a Okay, question. If you were asked to name moments in pop history that completely revolutionized music, what would you say? I know, me too, but we're totally wrong on about 12 of those. This past week, the AV Club had a, a, a fun article about how science has now proved definitively that in the history of popular music, there have only been three, one, two, three true revolutions in 1964, in 1983, and in 1991. Revolution, for the purpose of this study, by the way, was defined as a period of very rapid change in the pop music charts. And they looked at like 17,000 songs from the Billboard Hot 100 and evaluated harmony, chord changes, timbre, to determine what changed the most and when this was considered a revolution. So in 1964, the British Invasion, the Beatles, the Stones, the Spencer Davis Group. Maybe not that year. Okay. But with that, the disappearance of traditional jazz and blues chords. I had no idea. I don't really know very much about this, but I thought that a lot of what the Beatles and the Stones used, the Stones especially, was based on blues chords, though maybe I have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. If someone does, please get at me. Let me know. Tell me on Twitter, whatever, because theory was never... Really my strongest suit. All right. Then in 1983, new technology that was used to make music. Yes, the Moog. The Moog equals music revolution. It is indeed a sunny day. All right. And then in 1991, the mainstreaming of rap and hip hop, which was the first time that we had seen pop music that didn't necessarily use harmonies at all. It was mostly using spoken word and rhythms. You know that. But there you have it. 64, 83, 91. And that's just scientifically speaking. They were analyzing hard data to determine exactly three times in pop music that significant change was evident. These are the three revolutions. So I guess, and according to the article too, that should settle a lot of arguments once and for all. Or not, because these arguments that we have all had or heard Punk changed everything. Music was never the same after Elvis. Music was never the same after MTV. I can trace the rise of Mumford and Sons directly back to Nirvana, and it goes like this. No, I would never actually do that. But I wonder how much of the arguments that people make about what revolutionized music, how much of those arguments, at least somewhat, are rooted in when it happened to that person making the argument. The idea that a particular band or a style of music change the world, how often is that argument being made because a particular band or style of music changed that person's world? And that's not silly. 
or wrong or any less significant. Music means anything to all of us because it means everything to each of us. When music drastically changed for us and what that meant in our own lives, how everything changed in our world. No less a revolution than one that happened because suddenly no one was using traditional blues chords anymore. I mean, I know I have them. Revolutions, all huge, all significant, all mine. In 1983, I turned five, and I get the first birthday present that I can remember, Thriller. And finally, like I'd only been begging for it forever, and it was all I played. And it's the first album that I memorized that had no Muppets on it. And don't get me wrong, I still loved Sesame Street and the Muppets, but owning Thriller felt so much more adult. Now I felt like somebody's big sister, even though I already was someone's big sister at this point, but now I felt like it. Now it was real, because these are the things older sisters have and know about. And Thriller blasted open the door to Whitney Houston, Madonna, Cyndi Lauper, more Michael Jackson, Prince. I didn't stop listening to kids' music necessarily, but I started listening to music adults listen to also. And then soon after that, actually, I got my very first grown-up 45, Shame on the Moon, by Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. I I have no idea where that came from either. Nineteen eighty-seven, and I, I have this boombox, and it wasn't even a full boombox. It was it was pink, and that was great, but it only had three buttons: play, stop, eject, and fast forward. No rewind. I hated that. So when you want to rewind a tape, you have to eject it and flip it over and then fast forward for as long as you think the song was and then you get it back. You know, you had to do it too. But around 1987, I finally got a tape recorder that could record. And from what I remember, and I may just be complaining a few things, but from what I remember, I didn't get a full boombox that I could just play the radio on because, you know, you had those that had the radio function and then it had a tape function and everything where you could just play the radio and then record from the same device. No, it was a tape recorder that could play and record and rewind. Yay, finally. But it had no radio. So what I would have to do was tape songs by holding my tape recorder over the speaker on my clock radio. And by doing this, I successfully tape pump up the volume off the radio in this way. And it opens up a whole new world to me. Because up until this point, any music I was able to get that I would then own, I'd have to be given it as a gift, or I would have to buy it. And to buy it, I would have to ask my parents for the money to buy it. And so this would somewhat limit what I was allowed to get my hands on. And to illustrate this point with a specific example, here you go. I had the 45 of Lionel Richie's Dancing on the Ceiling. So it was like that. But now, since I could tape songs off the radio or MTV, I just had access to more music, more kinds of music, music that I wouldn't have to ask permission to get. So enter Guns N' Roses and probably Whitesnake, because I know you're not going to come with me on this if I'm not completely honest with you about everything I started listening to. New Year's Eve, 1991, and I hear Nevermind 
in Amanda Crying's basement. And she had older brothers, so of course they had this album. And all I remember is asking her over and over if she would rewind and play Smells Like Teen Spirit again and again. And she does because she wants to hear it too, over and over. And I swear to you that I wish this were a more interesting story, but that's it. That is the story. Two girls in a basement listening to Smells Like Teen Spirit over and over. And I kind of feel like some variation of that story is a lot of people's story for Nirvana and Nevermind and Smells Like Teen Spirit and whatever. But for something that had such a huge impact on me and the music that I sought out going forward, goodbye Mariah Carey, hello anyone who was on the singles soundtrack, it really was as simple as that. It was as simple as a moment where two girls have nothing better to do on New Year's Eve than play this tape in a basement. Then it's 1992, and I enter high school, and I'm still listening to Pearl Jam and Nirvana, and sidebar, remember when you used to have to cover your books in grocery bags, like the paper, brown paper grocery bags from the supermarket, and the ones that covered my textbooks were covered in Nirvana lyrics, and it was mostly on a plane, even though that was nothing I had ever experienced or really could relate to at all, but for whatever, it was in my head and all over my books. Anyway, it was mostly... Nirvana and Pearl Jam at this time, but then 10,000 Maniacs played the Clinton inaugural ball because Chelsea loved that band. And they played Candy Everybody Wants, and Natalie was wearing this amazing red dress with huge sleeves, and it was all just right place, right time. I had never heard this band before, and I had never heard anyone around me talk about this band. So because I'm 14 and I cannot be expected to do what everyone around me was doing ever... I begin listening to 10,000 Maniacs. All of it. New stuff, obscure EP recordings from when they were living in Fredonia, just everything. And I look for more music like this, just music that I never hear anyone around me talking about. And so this would also incidentally explain why I started listening to so much Billie Holiday around this time. And you're aching to move, but you're caught in the web of the spider. Then in 1997, I'm a sophomore in college, and I'm a musical theater major. And so for purely practical purposes, I start listening to all musical theater all the time. One, because you do not want to be in 1997 in a room full of music theater conservatory kids who all know every word to Seasons of Love and be the only one who doesn't. Trust me, you just don't. And two, because this is just what I did now. This is where I was. And I guess I no longer cared about not doing the thing everybody else was doing. So I listened to musical theater. I tried to find audition songs that sat well in my voice. And for a while, yeah, I used Kiss of the Spider Woman. So if that says anything to you about how weirdly deep a voice I had for a 19-year-old girl. And a lot of the late 90s for me was just buying, burning, and singing musical theater. It's what was around. It's what I chose to study and dreamed of making a career of. And then it's what I promptly decided to never do again once I graduated, but it was most of my late 90s. And maybe that's okay, because I'm not sure I missed much by not keeping up with the comings and goings of LFO and Limp Biscuit.
then 2002, I dated a DJ who broke up with me after about two months. But in the time that we were dating, and honestly, in the several months after we broke up, he burned a ton of CDs for me. Both full albums and mixed CDs. Everything but the girl. Far Side. We Are Scientists. Basement Jacks. Roman Numerals. Peaches. One of his gigs was at this restaurant that had no one in it on weeknights at all. So it was just him in this room playing loud music for swirling lights and a disco ball and nothing else. So yeah, whatever. He would just play what he wanted. And he burned CDs for me of what he was playing and what he liked. And it's not that I wasn't listening to this stuff already or this kind of stuff, you know, before we dated. It's just that these CDs and other music I thought was in line with what was on these CDs were almost all I listened to while we dated and just after. Because you know how when you like someone and you find out what music they like, then you start listening to that music when they're not around because it makes you think of that person and it makes you feel closer to them. That, that's what it was with the music from this time. And I guess I thank my lucky stars that this guy was super knowledgeable about any and all kinds of music. And so this collection was diverse. I'm not sure I would have welcomed this particular musical revolution if all the guy listened to and burned for me was fish. I have more of these. So many revolutions. But I thought maybe you had other things to do in the next four hours. So those were some of mine. What are yours? You know, before actually buying Nevermind, I bought the Smells Like Teen Spirit single, and even in his youth was the B-side. And then I wound up listening to this more than Smells Like Teen Spirit. So even in his youth became my A-side on that single revolutions within revolutions. Anyway, our story for this episode is from comic in your Netflix account, Christian Finnegan. Okay, by that I just meant you can watch his special, The Fun Part, on Netflix right now. There were probably clearer ways to say that. But back in the early aughts, Christian was a contestant on Name That Video on VH1. And he won. But he lost. But he won. This is possible. And it's all just so only in New York. It's funny how the best moments in your li- in your life and the worst moments of your life are so closely related, uh, not just in terms of theme, but also uh, in terms of time. The best moment of my life uh, involves seeing the face of Kevin Costner, which puts me in good company, I think. Um, set the scene slightly. The year was 2001, and at the time, I was living on 108th and Central Park West in a tiny two-bedroom apartment with a 38-year-old aspiring hip-hop DJ and his four dogs, two Rottweilers, a Labrador, and a Pitbull. Uh, one of the Labradors, I'm sorry, one of the Rottweilers, rather, was named Caesar, and he was, uh, I was warned never to touch Caesar because he was, quote, a little fucked in the head. 
Also, the apartment was filled with other tenants. By the other tenants, I mean rats, not mice, but actual rats that would run around the living room uh, every night as soon as the lights went out. And uh, I think the low point in that situation was the night where uh, I went to the bathroom one night and seven separate rats ran in front of my feet between me and the bathroom, and I found myself back in my bedroom saying the following words. Okay, Finnegan, you just threw a plastic bag of piss out the window because you're too afraid to walk to your own bathroom. This is a low point in your life. I was 22-5 in debt to MasterCard at the time. I had no chance of moving. Luckily, a friend of mine told me that VH1, Video Hits 1, was looking for contestants for a new game show called Name That Video. Uh, now this was right in my wheelhouse because I was a uh, music video fanatic. I, I, I spent my entire childhood, I, I was there for the birth of MTV. I remember when I heard of this mysterious thing called music videos and I thought it was like laser shows or something. And then I, oh, it's like little short films. Music videos combined my two favorite things in the world which were uh, popular music and sitting motionless on the couch. Um, and so I... Called in to the contestant line, and uh, I, I answered enough questions right on their phone questionnaire, and I was uh, accepted as a contestant. This was a big deal for me because I was an open mic comedian at the time. I've been doing comedy maybe two, two and a half years, three years tops, and uh, I'd never been on television. Once I was on TV. Once I got cast in a, a sketch on Conan where I was naked wearing a women's bikini uh, bottom with two braids of hair coming out of my ass. Uh, that was my only TV credit at the time. So this was, <laughs> this was a big deal to me that I was going to get on television to be on this game show. So I show up to the game show, and I am put into the green room with the other two contestants, and they're doing multiple tapings that day, and the other two contestants were really like determined to show each other and to show me how awesome they were. The other, the, the, the previous episode was being shot while we were in the green room, and they kept answering the questions really loud. Not me. No, I kept silent. I kept to myself off in the corner. It's one of the few times in my life where I've actually legitimately played shit cool. This is how I got into their head. They're all like, oh, uh, uh, John Cougar Mellencamp. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, okay. I wouldn't have known that. I'm just going to be over here now. Was it playing possum, I suppose? And so I uh, finally we got down into the, uh, into the show. And I'm not going to lie to you. I destroyed them. I destroyed them for two rounds. This is a show called Name That Video. In the first round, it was three contestants. There would be various categories, like fill in the phrase, where they would uh, you know, have a, a, a lyric, and then they would cut it off, and you'd have to continue it. Or they would just ask you trivia questions, or they'd have lyrics that rhymed with the actual lyrics. And I, I mutilated them. I'm not going to lie to you. I was just much better than all of them. And I can say that because it's only happened about three times in my life that I've actually felt good about myself in that situation. And finally, and then the second round, uh, they, they get rid of the uh, the dead weight after the first round. And then it's me and the second, the other dude. And we have to go head to head. And it's one of those things where it's like, I can name that video in four seconds. I can name that video in two seconds. Christian, name that video. Destroyed the guy. Not going to lie to you. And then finally, it's me in the final round. In the final round, the way this works is I am to be shown 10 music videos in 60 seconds, and I have to name song and artist, and I get through nine of them. I get through nine of them. I remember Small Town by John. That's probably why I thought of John Cougar Mellencamp, because there's a particular skill to know which songs are John Cougar, which songs are John Mellencamp. <laughs> And which ones fall into that specific middle wheelhouse, that transitional era, 
the uh-huh album of John Cougar Mellencamp. Uh, Small Town was the song, people. And so we get to nine songs, and then there's about 12 seconds left, and this song starts playing. And I don't know what it is. It's really soft and quiet, and the video is just a bunch of sort of mist and smoke, and I can't tell what's going on, and I'm watching the clock go down. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to lose. I'm going to lose. And I should mention that the, the, the grand prize for winning this game show was not only VH1's 100 greatest CDs of all time. They were giving you a fully tricked-out Toyota 4Runner, which is an SUV. It's like a, like a big-time car. It's not with some shitty fucking Camry that they give them prices right. This is a real car. <laughs> 10, 9, 8, and I can't figure out what the song is, and I could just see myself like typical Finnegan. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose this. I'm going to choke at the very last minute, and then somehow out of the ether, Kevin Costner's face <laughs> appears. The bodyguard. I will always love you crowd explodes what i didn't know at the time is that no one had won the game show yet the, the show had uh, they because it hadn't aired yet they taped like 15 episodes and no one had won and the thing about game shows is people have to win or else people stop watching do you know what i mean like you have to find that perfect point where it's like hard but not impossible that's why they started making millionaire easier after time do you know what i mean and so I remember before the final round, Karen Bryant, who was the host, who was kind of like a 90s sort of, if you can't hire a famous person, hire Karen Bryant, the role I would gladly take now. And uh, <laughs> I remember her saying, like, before we did the final round, like, I think you're going to do it. I think you're going to do it. And I'm like, oh, I, I don't know. It's very exciting. The crowd explodes. People are going nuts. People are like, there's balloons. There's excitement. I don't think there's balloons. There's balloons up here. And... Uh, <laughs> Everybody surrounding me and shaking my hand, and they whisk me off into this green room, and they say, hang out here. We're going to get everything settled. There's a couple of things you need to sign, and then we'll move on. And I remember sitting in this green room, and it felt so surreal. You know, the, you know that feeling like, like, uh, like when you fall off a swing set when you're a kid, and you hit your head a little bit, and everything's like in that sort of dream state <laughs> where things don't feel totally real? And then about 10 minutes went by, and then it felt kind of unreal, but a little bit more real. Then after about 20 minutes, it felt half real, half unreal. After an hour, it started to feel real again. And I started to wonder, what is going on here? Why hasn't anyone come in? Because at this point, I've already called my dad. I've called all my friends. I've told them, like, oh, my God, my life has changed. I'm going to win this car. My, you know, I'll never have to work again. These are the, I've never been a financial mastermind. And after about an hour, hour 15 minutes, Four of the producers walk in with just blank looks on their face. And they say to me, uh, so here's the deal. You never want to hear the word, so here's the deal. <laughs> Nothing positive has ever, it's never been like, so here's the deal. We're going to blow you. Like that's never, it's, ne it's never, no, it's always something negative. <laughs> they say, in the final round, you actually said two of the songs incorrectly. We played the song, You Shook Me All Night Long by ACDC, and you said you shook me, and we said yes, and let you keep going. And we also showed the song Crash Into Me by the Dave Matthews Band. You said crash, and we also let you continue. Now, this is silly, because if they had said, it wasn't one of those things where if you got it wrong, you just lost. It would be like, you'd get to keep answering or pass and then come back to it at the end. Do you know what I mean? So if they had said, you shook me, of course I would have said, you shook me all night long because obviously these people were not aware that in junior high school, I was in a metal band called Fallout in Acton, Massachusetts, and we covered, you shook me all night long. 
We rocked the eighth grade dance. Me singing it an octave lower. And Crash, yes, Crash was the name of the album. Crash Into Me was the name of the song. Of course, if they had said no, my, the first thing out of my mouth would have been Crash Into Me and everything would have been wonderful. And they said, so we've got a bit of a problem here because legally we cannot air this episode. So as surreal as it felt when I won, I remember when I, when I won, it was like the greatest moment of my life. And I thought like, I, I, I just, is this me? Is this my life I'm living? When I lost it, I felt like, yep, this feels right. <laughs> This feels totally the way it should. This is a feeling I'm used to. So they say, here's what we want to do. We're going to have you come back tomorrow and wear the same clothes, and we're going to give you 10 new songs and artists, and we're going to have you do the final round again. Sound good? And, of course, I don't know what I've signed at this point. I've probably signed 100 things. You know, they have you sign all these pages. You're not reading them. It's like terms of service on a, you know iPhone update. You're like, yeah, sure. And so I had to go home that night. And I remember it was a snowstorm. It was February 2001, and it was like three feet of snow. And I had to go back to my shitty apartment and, and lay down on my futon at night, which was not even the kind of futon that was a sofa. It was like the crappy kind that was like five inches off the ground, just on the frame, and listening to the rats chew the plaster behind my head just looking at the ceiling saying god please get off my face and i went back the next day and i said you know not everything works out the way you want it to i would love to say it was a moment of triumph well we have a little video of it and i, I will just show this to you briefly i will show you how my uh second attempt at winning the prize went down 60 seconds on the clock please ready christian yeah and go uh, right said Fred, uh, I'm too sexy. That's correct. Uh, uh, Waterfalls by uh, TLC. That's correct for two. Uh, Chris Isaac, Wicked Game. That's good for three. Uh, Warren, Cherry Pie. That's good for four. Uh, Van Halen, Jump. That's good for five. Uh, uh, Guns N' Roses, Sweet Child of Mine. That's right for six. Uh, Whitney Houston, I Want to Know. No. Uh, uh, pass. Uh, ZZ Top, Sharp Dressed Man. That's good, for seven. Uh, Jake Isles Band, uh, Centerfold. That's right, for eight. Uh, Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit. That's good, for nine. Uh, let's see, I'm going to let this go. <laughs> uh, uh, Whitney Houston, How Will I Know? No. Uh, oh, Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody. So that was my moment of music video glory. Now, people overuse the term only in New York a lot. Uh, but I do think that only in New York City can you be in your apartment surrounded by rats <laughs> one moment, take a subway five stops, win a car on a game show the next moment, and then immediately go back to living with rats for four months because that's how long it takes VH1 to give you the fucking car. <laughs> Thank you guys very much. We got Yes, Christian Finnegan. All right, so Whitney Houston is a bit of a weak area for him, and that's okay. I am happy to sit down with him and take him through 
step-by-step, all things Whitney. And I wouldn't even charge him. I would, I would just need to see his band in high school covering ACDC. Because VHS tape or it didn't happen. And that's it. That's our episode for this go-round. This has been the Soundtrack Series. And hey, I know it's a little ways off, but I'm super excited about this and wanted to tell you. If you are in or near New York City on Saturday, June 6th, come on out to QED to see us live because for this show, we have Chemda from Keith and the Girl, Vine superstar Jeffrey Marsh, and the legendary DJ Spooky. Saturday, June 6th, QED. Come out and see us. And until then, as always, you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, iTunes, Stitcher, right here where you found us, or in the eyes of someone you love. This has been the Soundtrack Series, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>